out of time because so I jotted down these names, these words. Edgar Casey, Nostradamus, Global Warming, Mind Prophecy, Apocalypse, Space and Time, December 21st, 2012, 11-11. And uh, at the very end, my consciousness was dreaming. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the uh, Bands of Time. It is good to be with you again tonight. Uh, the Brian and I are going to uh, probably come out of the gate screaming. Uh, we're going to talk about things uh, that nobody's going to want to hear. I mean, the uh, eschatology experts uh, think they pretty well got this one down pat. However, the Bible, just like always, gives you all the information. Most of the time, we don't really appreciate what it says. We don't take it to heart like my dad used to say. It is disturbing. The truth is very hard to come to grips with. Uh, just like Matthew 24, just like Revelation chapter 12, God's very clear. Uh, the bad angels get kicked out of heaven, and who do they target? The woman. It's a hard thing to swallow. Uh, everything that Matthew uh, describes there in the 24th chapter. I mean, how are you supposed to like that? How are you supposed to feel all warm and fuzzy about that? Well, our hope is in our redemption. That's where our hope lies. And people have a hard time accepting the fact that 
when they accept Christ's sacrifice, they're going to live forever. They have a hard time calculating the kingdom of heaven. But Brian and I brought up topics in the last uh, broadcast, and I want to thank everybody for their response. Um, even the ones uh, that sent me correspondence that were very upset. Let me make myself plain. The Brian and I, in no way, shape, or form, want you to go yelling and screaming at your pastor or your teacher, uh, your Sunday school teacher, whoever. Okay? Let us remember that the Bible is very explicit in its borders and boundaries for the bride. First and foremost is not arguing, especially not publicly. So there's nothing here that we're presenting that is an arguable point. Uh, there's no sense in going to, uh, you know, your your pastor that's that's been your pastor for 20 years and railing on him when he is just quite simply in ignorance. As a matter of fact, just like you were the moment before you watched that last broadcast. I mean, I didn't yell and scream at you. The bride didn't yell and scream at you. What makes you think you should go yell and scream at somebody in ignorance? I mean, and, and let me define that very clearly for all of you. Ignorance is simply not having the knowledge yet. That, that, that's all it means. It means you don't have uh, the technical data in front of you in order to plot out a course. It's just that simple. But tonight we are going to uh, delve very deeply. We're going to punch the core into one area one man and his many branches. His tree has many branches. And what bothers me the no most is what he said inside of a mosque in 1220. Bothers me what he called himself what he labeled himself. You look into his religion. It's very strange, to say the least. I am going to be taking a back seat, probably for the majority of this broadcast. Right before this broadcast, the Lord my God did it to Brian again. Literally, uh, we made the phone call and Brian was upset because he was very busy today. His wife just had surgery uh, in an exploratory manner for an ailment that she has. Uh, some things went on uh, with uh, family members. And so we got on here very late. And, you know, Brian's just like, hey, we're going to do something. We got to do something. We have to at least try to start. 
something occurs to him, so he decides to search it in the Greco Bible source code. It stares him right in the face, and he asks, you know, well, did you know what that is? Well, yeah. Yeah. All he had to do was ask me. And it let me know how far we're going to go tonight. Now I already know. I already know. So the Lord is faithful. And I'm using Brian as example right now so that you can keep your emotions in check. Unfortunately, especially for us men, he has designed us by our very nature uh, to use our emotion to dump adrenaline into our system so that we can, of course, protect his little ones. That's the whole purpose. So I need to be very clear with you. Okay? Using Brian as an example right now, just between the two of us. That look. Don't ever forget that Joseph was told at the extreme last second when he was to snuff up his wife, baby Jesus, and hit the road. There were no miracles performed that night. The only thing that the angel did that night was make sure that they were in the right place at the right time. Fifteen minutes later, of course, Herod's troops would have got he who is the Christ. So, who on this planet, in the masculine form, has had a greater honor than Joseph? And yet he was told the most detrimental of information right at the last second. Did he get mad? No. How did he use that emotion? That emotion sent, of course, adrenaline dumping into his veins. What did he do? Got him up, got him out, right as the soldiers were on their heels, right in the nick of time. That's what you need to do. You don't need to stand, I mean, Joseph didn't stand around and yell at Gabriel and say, well, why didn't you tell me sooner? I haven't had a chance to pack yet. You always have a choice how you're going to use the power of this soft machine once that adrenaline dump takes place. So don't yell at anybody. Don't start any arguments or fights. I'm not for that. And believe me when I say you don't want me to be for that. We, I, the bride, don't have time for it. We really don't. So, <clears throat> let me just predicate everything right now with this. The flail of God. What is the Bible talking about when it talks about kings from the east? And why on earth would it be the grand river Euphrates that is used to prepare their way?
Why? Not if. Not when. If you believe the Bible, you have the solution already. The question is, why? Take note that I've told you many times that the Masoretic coupled with the Delich creates the Hebrew Bible source code and it is true. Now, the Septuagint lined up with the Adida Regia creates the Greco Bible source code and it is true. What you have to understand is that it's a binary code. It's more than you can say with one breath. You see, God's breath brings life. So when he speaks, it's more than just consider these things. So when Brian talks about the Greek or Brian talks about the Hebrew, we're not saying or defending either of them. We are standing on top of both of them. Our right foot is on one and the is upon the other. And I appreciate some of the correspondence I got. Uh, questions about the Masoretic text. Uh, questions about the Greek text. Those are all good questions. I hope you, um, how'd my dad put it? I hope you took the answers to heart. But good question. And I'm sorry uh, that sometimes I have to tell you the truth. And you're emotionally connected to a, a translation of one sort or, or the other. But everybody has to start on milk. I mean, you cannot escape thy mother's breast. You, you can't escape it. That's where you have to start. That's where I started. I mean, I said this on the last broadcast. I'm sorry, but I'm not special. I'm just like you and probably less. Brian is not special. He's just like you. And a little bit more than me. We got serious things to talk about tonight. We are going to literally span not only the globe, we will span time as well. And one thing's for sure, ladies and gentlemen, I want to say one thing right now. Church doctrine uh, states that there's kings from the east, but it's funny how they attribute that to more than one group. Put that in your back pocket. You're going to need it later. Brian asked me last night, why are we doing this in this order? I said, I didn't have no choice. The Lord, he is God and he has determined our steps just like he promised. 
Well, we ain't to that Christmas star yet. But we will. And we all need to remember that, well, you need to start at the beginning. And something came before that Christmas star. So I guess we are doing it in order. Because everything is beautiful in its time. Amen? Bro, let's get this shindig started, buddy. Yep, it'd be that time. And I'm going to try to give everybody here a little bit of introductory material because in order to get to the flail himself, well, as in all things, you have to go back in time to find the root of the matter. As Matthew had stated, brought up, Fullwell made this very apparent. Something very detrimental in this whole thing. The East. We've been through the evidence that had been available throughout history. There has been a lot of, I, I guess, a lot of thought that when we were dealing with the wise men that came from the East, the Magi, well, of course, through what was available at that time, we had to be dealing with Persians, essentially, because of the historical ramifications of what takes place during the reign of Darius the Great, as you had the great war between the Magi, you had the uh, pretenders to the throne. You know, there's a, there's a plethora of information that went into this. You know, obviously, then we get to the conclusion of, well, we have to bring in Zarathustra with the Zoroastrians. So what it is that we're presenting here is actually a whole lot of new information. And as then Matthew had pointed out, sometimes we do things in ignorance. Look, folks, this is the heart of the matter. There are things going on here with the wise men from the East that could not be known till this point in history. It was veiled. It was veiled intentionally. We were not allowed to know until light was shed on a region where archaeologists had not even began to look. When they began to look, what had been uncovered essentially has begun to rewrite history. Where we are speaking of here is known as the steppe regions. It essentially stretches from the borderlands of going approximately into Armenia, albeit the original empires also were part of the Ukraine, going into what is now modern-day Russia. But let us not get confused here with this. Okay, we, we're looking prophetically at what is to come here, and this is one of the common topics of the day when we begin to talk about the War of Gog and Magog. 
you know, I think it's quite important to point out at this stage in time. The Bible is very specific when we go through and we have lists. Now, connecting these lists to nations, inadvertently, truth, at the same time, it's very important to understand that the Bible, over and over again, points out people groups. And when we look at the prophetic text, we look at the historical text, we see this time and time again, we have people groups listed. There was a private discussion with a group of us um, on the social network. The difficulty was made reference to of tracking the movements of these people groups and their migrations. And our friend of ours, good old John Gomez, was right on the mark. Yes, these migrations are above and beyond very difficult to trace and track. In my own human flesh, I could not do this physically on my own accord. There have been things that have happened along this path of doing this resource search over the course of the last few years that by all physical appearances are not natural. So, going back to it, John, you were right on the mark, but there's a lot more that goes into this. So let me go back to where I was, why that whole ball of wax came up in the first place. And of course, I'm not even uh, moved over to where I need to be. Um, pull this back over to what I wanted to start with. And once again, as I had pointed out, Russia, there is a reason that I stopped and explained that because the commonality of the teachings in this day and age is there's been a lot of confusion that came in over the years where automatically um, they've associated the word of Rosh with quote unquote Russia. Geographically speaking, at certain points in history, yes, and even to this day, when you look at the Ukraine, you go into modern-day Georgia, you go into regions that are along the coast of the Black Sea, you still do have people there that claim that they are descended from the very people that are listed in the War of Gog and Magog. Nonetheless, the entirety of the geographical location of Russia well, let me re-bring this back to everybody's mind here. We are dealing with people groups very specifically being named when we look at these last day events that are going to happen. So now this is why I'm turning everybody's attention to what I have on the screen here. Because this is going to begin to lay the foundation and groundwork so that you understand who this flail of God is and whom his descendants were and what this means, prophetically speaking. I have up on the screen the very first reference that is known through the Assyrian texts and in the Bible itself. As you can see here, I have Ashkenaz. 
Ashkenaz is a term found in a number of contexts. It is found in the Hebrew Bible to refer to one of the descendants of Noah, as well as a reference to the kingdom of Ashkenaz. Ashkenaz is the first son of Gomer and a Japhetic patriarch in the Table of Nations. His name is likely a derivation from the Assyrian Askuza, Askuzai, Iskuzai, a people who expelled the Cimmerians from the Armenian area of the upper Euphrates. The Assyrian name is likely based on that of the Scythians. And just so I can stop there and explain, yes, folk, folks, a mass majority of the academic community states that this is indeed the fact of the matter. The Scythian are mentioned in the Assyrian texts as being Ashkenaz. This becomes very important as we make our way forward here. We also, as it is brought up here, yes, we have a Jewish culture that lived in this region and is called the Ashkenazi, the only form that, of that term that is still used today. In the genealogies of the Hebrew Bible, Ashkenaz was a descendant of Noah. He was the first son of Gomer and the brother of Riphath and Togmarah. With Gomer being the grandson of Noah through Japheth. According to Jeremiah 51 verse 27, and these chapters in Jeremiah are some of the most important portions to completely understanding who it is that these people are because it gives the absolute description as to how they operated when it came to warfare and this is common knowledge when you're looking at these texts in Jeremiah it speaks of these judgments coming upon Babylon through these archers that ride upon horses I'm going to stop and explain something here folks you need to understand something about these archers because they're bows and that's why these bows are very amplified within these texts the modern academics that have actually had their hands upon these bows they refer to them to being just as powerful as a modern-day rifle you were dealing with a bow that was a recurve and at the bottom of it it had a curve that bent outwards, adding even more strength into this. A standard pull weight on one of these would be about the same as a 100-pound compound bow. Now, I don't know how many people out there have at some point in ta time taken up the sport of archery, be it through hunting or hobby, whatever it may be. I used to shoot a compound bow, a target bow, and recurves when I was a child. I had bows that had a hundred pound pull to them. Trust me, they are no fun. This was what they commonly used. They trained their horses in a very specific way, especially when you came down to Chinggis Khan, whom called himself, announced himself as the flail of God. You had horses that they trained to move in such a tight circle 
that what they were able to do, the reason they were able to completely decimate their enemies, they would go at them, they would whip those horses in such a tiny circle, turn them the opposite way as they would retreat, turn around, point their bows at them, and drop them. This was a force that stopped. Any empire that attempted to conquer them ran into issues. Alexander the Great had to retreat. He would not go into this region because he knew full well that his cavalry nor his armed Praetorian guards would be able to handle them. Darius the Great tried to cross into this area. Once he got there, it became full well apparent that there was no way that he would be able to conquer them. When the Assyrian Empire fell, when Nineveh was attacked, two of the most instrumental groups within the fall of the Assyrian Empire were the Cimmerian and the Scythian. We also had the Medes within this. Now that something hits me on top of it as well, it is important to point out this. When you begin to go through a lot of this literature concerning the Scythian, it has been accepted into a mass mainstream portion of the academic communities that they are Persian. It's time to kind of stop the bus there because folks, be careful on this. They, it will confuse you. They were not Persian, nor were they ever the Persian people. This became accepted fact within the academic communities. This whole trail went on and on and on till the point that anybody that dared challenge it, well, they were met with a lot of, as things go within those communities, you buck against the wall. They don't like it too much. There has been work that has been done where they take Herodotus and his descriptions trying to translate what Herodotus was attempting to relay in the Greek language. Herodotus did not lie. He did what he was able to do with the use and understanding of the Greek language to explain who these people were. Those Greek words, the descriptions of the religions, the varied things that went on in the text in Herodotus only are going to take you to one place in the world. This is going to bring you to the language of India, to what they refer to as the Indo-European worship. You're also going to come along to find out that they were also known in India as the Shaka. Persians were the Persians. Scythian were the Scythian. Yet through the clues that have been left for us through history, because of the fact of what the Assyrians called them, we know that they are Ashkenaz in the Bible. Trying to debate on where to go with this next. It's just too much information to cover here for me to try to keep this all straight. 
I think it was very important where I stopped to explain how it is that their warfare works because now you're going to begin to understand the ramifications of what is going to transpire at the time of the Gog and Magog War. Daniel 11 verse 44 and let me just one moment here I forgot to load that into the memory of my program give me two seconds so I can uh, bring that in now why that's going there I don't oh that's why all right that's saved and let me get over to Daniel 11 verse 44 because this is going to give us an understanding here of how it is that we have the axe, yet we also have the flail. I get this over here. Okay. And double check. A lot of micromanagement has to go on here, folks. Sorry about that. All right, let me see. Bring this over to the Word. Now, right here in the top search window, I have the Word that is used in Matthew. Try to scroll that down. Well, it's the, it's the very same Word that is in Matthew 2, verse 2. The Word that is used for East. The wise men that came from the East. In Daniel... 11 comes up in the second to last verse. And we might as well start at verse 40 and then go to the end here. That the time of the end, king of the south shall attack him. The king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and with many ships and he shall come into the countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land and tens of thousands shall fall. But these shall be delivered out of his hand, Edom and Moab, the main part of the Ammonites. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and of silver and all the precious things of Egypt and the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. The news from the east and the north shall alarm him and he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction and he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. Now I am uh, sure why that is coming up. I can fix that in a moment. Nonetheless, I am hoping what people are beginning to understand here. There was always a, um, how have we put this, Matthew, a bit of a check mark, a bit of a boundary.
put in place. First yeah. time around the ride, the Scythian, Cimmerian, the Medes were used to bring about the destruction of Nineveh. The last time around the ride, news is going to come from the east. The east is going to lead you exactly to the flail. Going to take a moment to breathe here, Matthew, and turn this back over to you. That's exactly correct. They were used as a check upon the mighty series. Or am I? I'm unmuted. Did you unmute me? At any rate, yes, the flail seems to have been used as a check, ladies and gentlemen, uh, for the mighty Assyrian. You see, and we should know that because God makes it perfectly clear that after God swings his axe, he annihilates the land and the people from which he comes. So we should know that. We should expect one of two things. We've either got angelic intervention, the wrath of God himself, or a check. Something is checking. A checkmate for the Lord's acts. That's what we come to. And... Let me say this. I'm going to go ahead and set up to share screens here. I'll get ready to do this and switch over to some of these things so you can look at them. Because uh, I prepped for this. But something's going to uh, really rattle your cage, ladies and gentlemen, unfortunately. You see, this is exactly what happened, and I'll just bring it up real quickly so you can see it. The flail of God. I am a flail of God, proclaimed the Mongol ruler Khan from the pulpit of a central mosque in Bakura in 1220. If you had not committed great sins, God would not have sent a punishment like me upon you. A flail, he truly was, one that descended in great cities and set lands like a whirlwind. Ladies and gentlemen, this is not uh, a pro-biblical text. The Mongols had elected Khan as their great Khan in 1206. Not only a brilliant strategist and conqueror, but also a superb administrator. He quickly broke up the ancient tribal structure and organized his ferocious armies into tightly controlled standardized units in multiples of ten. There's a problem with this whole thing. Let's just take a look at this. What weapons did they use? You can see them right here. Do you see a flail there? Of course you don't. 
There's the bow. Saddle. Of course, they utilize this to great effect. Chainmail. Of course, the saber, uh, particularly useful. Uh, you'll take note of uh, its shape from the top of a horse. Uh, you'll take note of their small catapult and, of course, their heavy artillery, the triple bow siege crossbow. There's one thing missing here, isn't there? That's right, a flail. Why did he call himself the flail of God? We can go over here. Uh, of course, here's another representation. Of course, this was their standard armament, the bow. They used it to great effect. And most particularly, uh, how they tipped the arrow. Uh, they had a vast wealth of different types of arrow points. Uh, rather magnificent. Now, spears and lances were also uh, given to lower class soldiers. Uh, we're missing something, aren't we? There's no flail. There's no flail here. Now, what is of particular uh, interest here is the utilization of horses and how they trained them. Uh, it, it says here, of course, that uh, the vast effect that not only the weapons had, but you see, uh, these groups of ten would all have their horses in different gallops when you do your research. Because shooting from the back of a moving horse, okay, can only be accurate when it's in the loose in the phase of the gallop when all four feet of the horse is off the ground. That's when you shoot. So you realize utilizing this tactic, it was literally a machine gun fire of arrows. Every single rider would wait until all four hooves were off the ground, then let loose. In doing this, it created an endless wave of arrows. However, uh, you can just take a look here from the Wikipedia article. Uh, you'll take note. A catapults, machines, the carash. No flails. Ever. No flails ever. Let me ask you something. Did you know flails in the Bible? I bet you don't know where to look. Because you're not going to find it in the English Standard Version, that's for sure. Matter of fact, I'm not too sure if you can find it in any English translation. Oh, but it's there. Oh, it's there. Let us consider some things right off the top of our head. Revelation chapter 16. 
if you want to talk about the Greco standard military tactic, the Egyptian, the Assyrian, no, 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 no. There's only one people that ever perfected the horse assault. And no one could stand before them. Why do you think that the Bible would tell us that when his fury comes up in his face, the plague strikes both the horse and rider? Well, you think he was talking about the Egyptians? Oh, I think not. Prove it to me. Was he talking about the Persians? Nope. He could only have been talking about just one group. And I tell you what, let's think about East for a minute, shall we? This is a late great planet Earth right here, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, this is in the configuration. Hey, one moment, Matthew. I need you to reset your graphics. They've had to be reset for a while. It's been coming in blurry for a long time. Um, let me, uh, slide it over to the other one while you fix it quick. I don't know why this is doing this, folks, and I just really, at the end of the day, a little hard to fix it, so we'll hopefully get that portion of the graphics ironed out here at some point. I don't know what is doing that. Alright, let's see, try to load that back in again, and I will get those links from Matthew that he had in there so that we can, uh, post those to the show notes. Um, still blurry. Switch to your camera. You're obviously not on the stream at this moment. I've got the our logo up. Okay. Thank All right. You. Try to swap back over now to Google Earth. All right. All right. Well. Good enough. I don't know what's causing it. It's just going to cause us more time to try to figure it out now. It's good enough. People can still see the globe. It's got the outlines of continents. Good enough. Okay. All right. All right. Sorry about that, folks. Here we yeah. have the river. Now I'm going to show you something that's probably going to surprise you. This is what the flail of God accomplished. No one ever accomplished something to such an extent. Not ever. And no one ever perfected a war-born course like they did. I have said that to say this. God's given you a whole lot more information than you think because 
We're going to talk about that flow of God in the Bible here in just a minute, probably. I hope I gave not only Brian an adequate breather, I hope I gave you one as two. So you can see the extent of why. I mean, I showed you geographically why they would want to use the river Euphrates. See, they've learned a lesson. Very good lesson. One of the only lessons that they ever learned was traveling by sea can be a bit rough. So, ladies and gentlemen, let me pass this back over to the bride and consider uh, where this is going. Because we have details about Khan. Everybody says that the historians are lying when they describe what he looked like. Your historians say that the people that give actual eyewitness accounts are lying about what he looked like. That can't be the thing. Bri, back to you. And that's where I was about to interject in. Yep, because this is the whole entirety of this uh, equation here, folks. Everybody, you've got to understand so that we can show you what is going to be. have to show you what has been. And as I had pointed out, till this point in history, there is no way that anybody could have known now, a discovery was made in the course of not too far back, let's just put it this way. This is one of many articles here that I'm going to pull up for everybody. This is known as the Mummies of Jin Jiang. Dry hills of the Central Asian province archaeologists have unearthed more than 100 corpses that are as much as 4,000 years old astonishingly well-preserved and Caucasian. One glimpse of the corpses was enough to shock Victor Mayer profoundly in 1987. Mayer, a professor of Chinese at the University of Pennsylvania, was leading a tour group through a museum in the Chinese city of Ermukai in the Central Asian province of Xinjiang. When he accidentally strayed into gloomy, newly opened room, there under glass lay the recently discovered corpses of a family, a man, a woman, and a child of two or three, each clad in long, dark purple, woolen garments, and felt boots. Even today, I get chills thinking about the first encounter, says Mayer. Chinese said they were 3,000 years old. Bodies looked as if they were buried yesterday. Oh boy. The real shock came when Mayer looked closely at the faces. Contrast to most Central Asian peoples, these corpses had obvious Caucasian or European features. Blonde hair, long noses, deep-set eyes, and long skulls. I was thunderstruck, Mayer recalls. Even though 
I was supposed to be leading a tour group. I just couldn't leave the room. Questions kept nagging at me. Who were these people? How did they get out here at such an early date? Corpses Mayor saw that day were just a few of more than 100 dug up by Chinese archaeologists over the past 16 years. All of them are astonishingly well preserved. They came from four major burial sites scattered between the arid foothills of the Tian Shan Celestial Mountains in northwest China and the fringes of the Taklamakan Desert some 150 miles due south. Altogether these bodies dating from about 2000 BC and into 300 BC constitute a significant addition to the world's catalog of prehistoric mummies. Unlike the roughly contemporaneous mummies of ancient Egypt, the Xinjiang mummies were not rulers or nobles. They were not interred in pyramids or other such monuments, nor were they subjected to deliberate mummification procedures. They were preserved merely by being buried in the parched stony desert where daytime temperatures often soar over 100 degrees. The heat the bodies were quickly dried with facial hair, skin and other tissues remaining largely intact. Where exactly did these apparent Caucasians come from? And what were they doing at a remote desert oasis in Central Asia? Stop here for one moment, folks. I have watched several documentaries on this, even going back to the original people that actually discovered these. One of them was a French woman, and if I believe correctly, the other one was an Asian man. So I saw the actual discovery and everything that went on when these were found. Where they were found was on the very tip of the Gobi Desert at the very border of Mongolia. I will just include this article of many in here so people can take a closer look at this. This is one from Discover Magazine right here. Let's go over to another one. The Three Mummies of Jin Jiang. Here we have one of the pictures of the probably the most well-preserved mummy in this. Essentially, we've got the same uh, story going on here, and now we have a date as to when they were found. It was 1978, so this is going to put us a little bit further in the past than um, 20 years. This is again why I sort of state that you know those that are out there that are teaching the historical aspects sometimes we have to go back to the table and look at the new evidence this is a very very great example of why it is that I say that something major I want to point out here to highlight this portion for just one moment now to take it off Another very strange thing about the Tareem mummies is the attire in which they were buried. In fact, that some of them had blonde hair and blue eyes 
hadn't given away the fact that they were Westerners that had settled in what is now Xinjiang. The clothing they wore when they were buried would have. One of the mummies, the Yinping man, was six feet tall, six inches, and wore a red tunic with gold embroidery. He also wore a gold foil burial mask. This burial clothing is far more indicative of Western influence than of Eastern. Other Turin mummies have also been found wearing decidedly Western clothing. Pay attention to this, everybody. One of the oddest bits of clothing found. Any of these mummies are the flat-brimmed pointy hat, pointy witch hats, that were discovered on, and this is what they referred to them as, the witches of Sabushi. Not the first time this group of people has been found wearing what we would commonly refer to that has come down throughout history as being the hat of a magi. Go over to another picture that shows some of these findings. see here here we have um, DNA and genetic conclusions and let's see here I'm just gonna stroll through this a lot of this DNA stuff is about 2,000 feet above my head I will never claim to be an expert in it because man oh man it's some complex things but we are living in a day in an age where we can track these migrations a whole lot more accurately due to the fact that they have the genetic sciences now so now at this point in time when I come to the plate swinging I'm able to walk in with verifiable evidence and really you're gonna give me 100 ads before I can actually get to this article that's it too bad guess you're not being included once again we have here a link from a um, archaeo 2 blog spot this guy keeps track of some pretty good uh, archaeological discoveries through varied uh, very documentaries that you can find all over YouTube I must say I do love YouTube for the fact that I can track down some of these documentaries you can't even get a hold of anymore even to the point of a lot of these guys have fed their VCRs right into their computers so that they can present these documentaries that's good stuff so here is the uh, article that Matthew brought in earlier concerning the flail of God so I can see this a little more clearly no, I think it's important to point out a couple of other aspects. Moment here. I adjust a couple of things and move it over to the camera. Now is it going to focus? Yes, it's not doing what it did before.
and what they know about the Mongol population. Once again, the academic communities, be it through the archaeology, the anthropology, and the genetic testing and studies. Mongolia itself was inhabited by the Tokarian and the Shaka. Shaka are a branch of the Scythian. Tokarian, one of the groups that they refer to as being one of the earliest groups that they're able to trace within the original Indo-European people group. Now, the Indo-European people group as a whole, it tends to begin to get very confusing. A lot of this is due to the fact of the way that languages had, uh, they like to refer to it in the same way as genetics, how you had root branches of it that over time began to go into other people groups the migrations through the living together you would have a continual process where the languages would change a slight bit that would retain their original roots one thing that they do know on top of this this is very common when you begin to study this is that your first horse trainers and your chariots all originated from this location archaeologically speaking historically speaking this is the standard findings throughout every circle at this stage in time. This very group of people, once Noah's Ark came to rest. Okay, we, we've spoken about the findings there at Gobekli Tepe. We've spoken about the location of the biblical Eden, which is due south of Lake Van. Now where we're going here is what happened after the flood, as the people began to spread out. Archaeology, sciences, anthropology, historical records all confirm that this people came from this very same steppe region that went on later be the ones that were masters with the chariots and were training horses once the sea peoples came along use of the chariot began to be phased out the sea people well they they were a little bit they knew how to deal with the chariot you stop and consider for one second on top of it we have one specific group of people that are named within the people the sea peoples all depending on how it is translated from the Egyptian most referred to them as either the Shekelesh or the Shakalasha I think it's kind of detrimental that I point out here this group of with associated within the Scythian people group when you went into India on top of it they referred to them as the Shaka have the root of the exact same word that is the Shakalasha. Take it and break it down even further when you take it back to Ashkenaz. You remove one letter, albeit if it was the A in front of it or the I, right in the middle, you still had that exact same root word. Lo and behold, now we also have verifiable, identifiable 
proof behind who it was that the Shakalash, the Shakalasha were of the Sea Peoples of the Bronze Age. The reason the chariot itself was phased out. When the Sea Peoples came in, they knew how to deal with the chariot. Basically, using a spear alleviated the whole problem. So a new phase in warfare was begun by these nomadic peoples, these nomadic steppe tribes, and they had already earlier in history had domesticated the horse and began to ride them. You do also see this as well with the Persian Empire. They were very prominent with the use of the horse. Nonetheless, not even remotely close how proficient the people of the plains and the steppes were. They were nomadic. They did not have cities to invade. They would feign retreat. They used this tactic all throughout history, even up to the Mongol Empire itself. They would feign retreat to get their enemies to chase them. They would pivot on their horses, come right back at them, and drop them. As stated before, Darius the Great did not make it very far when he attempted to invade Scythia. Alexander the Great knew better. As Matthew just showed you that map, all throughout history, there was never a conqueror that was able to, by force, take an empire such as Chinggis Khan and his relatives. You were dealing with a force that was above and beyond and far surpassing something to be reckoned with. And all of a sudden, on top of it, Chinggis stands up declares himself the flail of God brings a whole new piece to the equation a little stuck here on where to go next there's just too much information to cover here can point out as we know scientifically and archaeologically genetically Speaking, this group that later in history became the Khan Empire, they were directly descended from these same people groups, the Tukharian, the Shaka, the Scythian mummies that had been discovered in Siberia. Six foot five, blonde hair, blue eyes. Scythian kings are always depicted as wearing big cone hats. Red and gold. Fun with their bows. Buried with their horses. Continual pattern you only see through these nomadic steppe peoples. No matter where it is they migrated, it always retained the same pattern. Matthew had mentioned the bows, the arrows. Another important trait that was passed along through the Scythian is Herodotus had detailed who they were. And actually, that's time where I take a step backwards. Let's go back to Herodotus. Herodotus, in his writings, also pointed out that one of the tribes of the Scythian, they had red hair and blue eyes. 
constant same pattern. Arrows, even that the cons used, the same as the Scythian, were dipped in a serpent poison. You took a hit from one of those arrows, no matter what, be it the physical damage or the damage of the poison, you had a big problem on your hands. Within one second, they were able to fire out six arrows as they turned in a tight circle and went the opposite way of their enemies as they charged straight in at them. Pretty powerful. From the study of tactics, which I've done a lot of my life and looking at strategies used by the great conquerors throughout history, this was something that was unprecedented. Which one do I bring up first here? Matthew brought up something previously that the historians didn't want us to know. So what was it that Mr. Chinggis Khan looked like? Well, he had part of the native Mongol genetics within his blood. That's quite well apparent. There was a native people that were mixed in with the combination of the Tokarian, the Shaka, and the Mongol people. Very difficult to find these references and what I've had one shock after another in this entire process. We'll go back first to the Mongolian, who it is that they claim they are descended from. They state flat out in their own legends, our forefathers were tall, blonde-haired, blue-eyed. Their own legends state this. They state that through intermarriage, that they became shorter and took on the appearance they had. Many of them do have the darker hair. Yes, this is a given fact. Changus. And I about stopped dead in my tracks when I saw this one and I just said it just gets better by the minute. I should have known. The one book that I'm going through right now that is one of the latest um, academic works on the Khan Empire. He goes through and he describes how it is that the marriage process between it, the Mongol tribes would travel to another group within, over by the border of Turkey where they would intermarry. They had to go through a process where, should seem kind of familiar, they had to present some sort of financial means to obtain the wife. Changus was in a circumstance on top of it where he had to work for the father-in-law. After a series of events had taken place, a lot of infighting with these tribes within the steppe, he comes back, is able to pay what was required to obtain his wife then what I see this author right next blindsided me. How proud he was to have a broad-shouldered, red-haired warrior for his son-in-law.
begin to ask a lot of questions here at this stage. Another historian's work that I just started this morning. He points out that there was an interchange that had taken place throughout history that most of the historians seem to have either missed or they have avoided. At the very same point in history, in what they would call the western portion of the world, albeit it was actually the Greeks at that point in time, had a very high philosophical thinking. Major, major moves forward in varied realms of thinking all took place at this time. In Greece, went to the eastern side of the world. Same thing happened in Asia. And yet you had to have an intermediary in between. It's a common thing throughout history where we look at things and go, oh, well, that was all just coincidence. But there, are, I have a problem with that, and I've always stated this just in common day life. I don't believe in coincidence. It just doesn't work. Somebody was in the middle. One other very important thing to point out here at this stage of the game concerning the Scythian Empire, and Herodotus made this very clear. They were merchants. They were traders. Later in history is when the Silk Road came to its prominence known as a major trade route. During the time of the Islamic Empire arising, Crusades and so forth, there was trade going back and forth on the Silk Road. But what we do know from the textual evidence is this was happening as well during the Bronze Age. You had intermediaries in between that somehow all of this philosophical, this great cosmologies, this astronomical details, all of these things began to come to the forefront. Yet your most prominent philosophers that were in the middle, text stated emphatically, they were of Scythian origin. I'm not making this stuff up, folks. You can get into the history. You can look at the findings. All of this is verifiable at this stage of the game. DNA, genetics, archaeology, science. Why? I cannot, I cannot answer why this could not be made known until we progressed along and as it was stated in that previous article, I believe it was 1978 was when the first one was found. Historians have not even touched for a very long time all of what happened in those eastern steppes. The common thing that was brought forward is, well, we don't have enough evidence, textual evidence, to even uh, attempt to try to bring this to the table. Problem is, is that's incorrect. As this person that wrote the book that I'm reading now about the Silk Road stretching back to its earliest time and through the Bronze Age and through to modern time. He states emphatically there was more than enough textual evidence. It has always been there. He said if he could actually take a camera and show what he has just from the ancient textual evidence alone, well, he would have to zoom out pretty far. 
time for me to take a breather again and let Matthew come out swinging. Let me come out swinging, huh? I like that. Let Matthew come out swinging. That's that's pretty good. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to take a look at what the Bible source code has to say. Oh, flail is there. It's always been there. The Hebraic Bible source code, it's in there twice. On top of it, when you look into East in the Greco Bible source code, it's right there too, and it's telling you something magnificently important. Let's get to the text for a minute, shall we? This is the word in question, right here. We'll just go ahead and uh, bring it up so you can see it plainly. Right there it is. It is muag. It's a threshing sledge. It's always bothered me, it's placement. Well, first, well, let's do this. Let's take a look at its first context here in the Hebrew. You'll take note that uh, this is all about David's altar. And uh, some of the things mentioned here is extremely important. But King David said to Onan, No, but I will surely buy it for full price. For I will not take what is yours for the Lord or offer a burnt offering, which cost me nothing. I suggest you look into that in your spare time. The critical place where it is, of course, in the Hebraic is Isaiah chapter 41. Where Israel is encouraged, of course, by the coastlands. But here it is. Behold, I have made you a new sharp threshing sledge with double edges. You will thresh the mountains and pulverize them. And I will make the hills like chaff. You will winnow them. The wind will carry them away and the storm will scatter them. But you will rejoice in the Lord. You will glory in the Holy One of Israel. Right there it is. That is the Hebrew, of course, for a flail. And it's very important uh, that we're able to see this. Uh, just, just so you know what we're talking about here. So we'll just switch back over here and let you see this uh, right here. I've already got it up. Right there. You can plainly see this is the Hebrew version. Okay. Of the article for flail. It's right there in front of your face. We can even uh, scroll down here and get the English of it. Now, now look. Look and see. Any questions? I just showed you unequivocally what it is. 
Why did Khan call himself this thing? Now, ladies and gentlemen, does anybody realize what it is uh, that uh, East is in reference to the Bible source code, the Greco side? Let's just take a look at what it's gotten. Oh, I don't know where we was just at. Why don't we do that? See it? Here, I wonder where it's at in the New Testament side. Let's just go to Revelation chapter 16, shall we? Now, what is that word? Look and see. Which one is it? Hey, I'm Matthew. I'm having a bit of a time following here because your stuff is so blurry. I'm having to whip it over to mine, so. Okay. okay. Well, just whoever knows. Um, yeah, at least tell what verse that is because uh, it's, it's hard for anybody to see it at the moment. Okay, Revelation chapter 16 and verse 12 right there. What you read uh, in your Bible, of course, is the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way would be prepared for the kings from the east. That right there, ladies and gentlemen, that is Anatole. What you know is Anatolia. That's what it is. That's what is in the Greco Bible source code for East. And yes, that word in the Greco side of the Bible source code, it comes up in that very same chapter, Isaiah 41, twice, verse 2 and verse 25. And by the way, in verse 2, it also talks about his bow. Now, let's think about the odds of that, shall we? Let's think about the odds of it. It's been right there the whole time. It's been right there the whole time. When you think about Muag being in the Bible, it means flail. I mean, I literally showed you the Hebrew, then switched it over to the English Wikipedia article so you could see. It's right there in the Bible. Isaiah chapter 41 becomes monumentally important when you realize exactly uh, the information contained therein. Just with this Anatolia and Muwalk. But it took both sides of the source code to put that information together. It took both sides of it. Once you can see, well, you can see indeed. It leads you to look for the evidence therein, which Brian has covered. Just now. You know, I really don't care what Khan looked like. I don't care if he was a, you know, a purple. I really don't care. 
I don't care if he had a perm. I don't care if he was bald. I really don't care. So when the written text tells me, uh, hey, he had red hair, I, I don't have a problem with it. So when they start unearthing all of these mummies, and I don't know if Brian showed you the map or not, but showed you the locations of all those mummies, all over his place, all over it. So when the Bible tells us something like that, we shouldn't have a problem with it. You just got to swallow it. How many times have I said that? You got to swallow it. You have to understand that when you look at pictures, little pretty little drawings about Genghis Khan, those are lies. Look at the written historical records. They describe him as having red hair. And take note that in most of those pictures that you get, they won't show you his hair. They might show you his beard, but they won't show you his hair. They'll have it, of course, covered up. There is no historical context as to why he would call himself the flail of God. No reason whatsoever. Kings of the East. Ladies and gentlemen, Revelation chapter 16 can only be referring to them. When we think about that, when we think about why God would mention that, about the great plague that's going to strike them down uh, in the book of Ezekiel. Why does he mention the horse? Why? Why is he there? What is it that God uses as a checkmate upon the mighty axe? It would seem unequivocally we've been told by God's word it's his flail this is the explicit reason why the great river Euphrates is dried up to make way for him the flail of God Does that rattle your cage? Does that make you upset? Look, there's, there's no area for debate here. We have not only the mummies, but the genetic testing from the mummies. It was the Mongols. Now, you just have to swallow it. And you have to realize that what the Bible is talking about is something terrifying. Ladies and gentlemen, why would God have to strike the horses down too? Why would the horses be struck with the rider? Why? There's only one group of people ever that trained their horses in stride and gallop that the two become 
a symbiotic, animated weapon of life. The horse and rider. So, that's never occurred to you why God uses the plague to strike down the horses too? Brian made a good point privately. It means their princes must have been involved. Of course, we know Asher. Hmm. Let's take a look back. Hopefully, it'll work. Well, let me interject something there for two seconds now that you brought this up. Okay. And I absolutely forgot. Oh. A couple weeks ago, this came up um, while we were on a Iron Show with uh, Michael Bug and uh, Johnny. And uh, Michael made mention of the infamous Seven Sages. I just came upon this today and I found that all kinds of, um, all considering, all kinds of uh, ironic. The ancient Greek considered one of the Scythian, as they would call them in those days, philosophers to be one of those seven sages. Really? Indeed. Well, we'll have a little bit to talk about on part two of people from the East about that because when you look into the etymology of their names, it points you to very strange places. But thank you for throwing that in. Let's get back to Isaiah chapter 41 in the Septuagint. Read verse 1. Hold a feast to me, ye islands, for the princes shall renew their strength. Let them draw nigh and speak together. Let them declare judgment. Who raised up righteousness from Anatolia? I'm sorry, I said that wrong. Who raised up righteousness from the east and called it to his feet so that it should go? Shall appoint it an adversary of the Gentiles and shall dismay kings and bury their swords in the earth and cast forth their bows and arrows as sticks. Ladies and gentlemen, you need to take a real long, hard look at Isaiah chapter 41. And I mean a real hard look at it. A real hard look at it. Did you catch that? Let me interject something else here quickly, Matthew. Once again, something we spoke about privately. Folks, as things stand, right now, the events that are transpiring, it's actually on a worldwide level. We've gone out of our way to bring to the attention of everybody what is taking place with this Islamic State. Now let us go backwards in history. Real quickly here. 
Time of the rise of the Mongols. This is approximately in the neighborhood of 1200 AD. Portion of the world throughout the Middle East was continually filled with battles between the people of Islam and the Crusaders. Yet when Chinggis Khan had made the decision that he was going to go beyond the borders of the steppe, one of the places he went into was Iraq, where that, at that point in time, the caliphate, which is the leader, it, it means the leader of the Islamic empire, that's why it is that the Islamic State came forward and declared al-Baghdadi, he declared himself to be the caliphate. That is where all of this has been leading since the time of the Taliban, since the time of al-Qaeda. They just were taking small steps. They didn't want to go forward like the Islamic State did. The one complex piece. Let me point out something else quickly here as well. We have spoken in depth about the black flags of Khorasan. We have let everybody know who is there right now as we speak. The Pakistan tribe that refers to themselves as the Sons of Joseph. They also know that there are a portion of Ashkenaz is also in this area in Khorasan. But let me ask you a, a real quick. As a matter of fact, let me just go back to my camera here. Let me ask everybody something that is a little bit, I'd have to say, obvious at this stage. Right now, we have coalitions from every part of the world that are trying to put an end to this Islamic State. We have Russia, who has now just in the last couple of days has stated emphatically their main ally within this is Iran. Within the last couple of days, the UN said, well, we've stopped our investigation into the Iranian nuclear weapons situation. We've had the Western coalition with the United States. As we've went along, we've had France, we've had Britain, the United States, multiple countries at this stage in time that have also stepped into this. One place seems to be doing whatever they want in the middle of this. Turkey, it's been proven beyond any shadow of a doubt before they even started arguing about it in the media. I have made reference to the fact that the Islamic State has been going straight through the borders of Turkey with their black market oil smuggling. This was known way back upon a time before Russia even started making the accusations. Okay, folks? Turkey shot down that Russian warplane a few weeks ago. Well, things have gotten a little more heated in the meantime. We warned folks to keep an eye on that situation. Russia's not letting this one go. But on top of it, they pointed to the fact that when we came in and started doing our airstrikes, America, we coordinated with you and we stated that we were not going to fire on one another, not to even mention we were also going to protect one another. So now Russia's pointed the finger and said, how was this allowed to happen? Turkey is invading Iraq at the same time. And guess what? Just as I have stated, I don't know if I stated it on air. I've stated it privately to Matthew. They're going after the Kurds. That went back 
and took a stronghold of the Islamic states. Turkey's in there bombing them. Iraq has said, get out of our nation. America, several other countries have stepped in and said, you better knock it off. Now what's going to happen? Because we can quite clearly see that all the campaigns, and I've studied in depth how the Islamic State works, the tactics they are using, and why it is that they are able to do what they are doing. But what's going to happen when the East decides they're going to step into this? The first time around that they went into Iraq, they brought that caliphate to his knees. In due course, he was executed. Wasn't the first time they come up against either Islamic empires, Western Crusader empires that had their bases and fortifications set up there. There's much history written about what they did within the Ukraine and Georgia and how they attacked Russia countless times. You know, I saw somebody on the social network bring to everybody's attention that, you know, there was some statements about invading Russia and look how that turned out the last times. These step peoples never had a problem invading Russia. Not to mention on top of it, everybody, do you realize what their climate is like? They have steppe regions that are very nice and fertile and very good ground. But they are also by mountains. They are able to survive in the harshest, coldest climate circumstances on the face of the planet. They are a very hardy people. Now as we watch these current events unfold in front of our eyes throughout the Middle East, as the entirety of the world at this stage has leapt into it, and everybody, everybody out there catch that now, and most of the Western nations are kind of scratching their head going, where did this come from? There's a Saudi Arabian coalition in the equation now too. You might want to take a list of everybody who is involved in this. Memory serves me correctly, it was about 37 countries. Jordan, Egypt, Yemen. Now, whole, not more, of the world has become involved in this and this keeps building and building and building. You see, here in the Western media, they want you to believe that this is simmered down and this is nothing to be concerned about. We have now had within the very last few weeks, it was announced through presidential address that special forces were going to start being sent in on the ground. Yet investigative journalists began to see that it was a little bit more than special forces. Actual troops are now being committed into Iraq and going into Syria. Okay, volatile situation here, folks. Russia, Iran. They stand behind Assad. They do not want his sovereignty overruled. Western coalitions, Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia considers his family to be a heretic. 
See, they don't want him there anymore. Whole circumstance continues to build, continues to escalate. Forces from him that have arisen. We have showed that on top of it through genetics, through historical text documentation. How these are his forces. Historically speaking, two times. Two times. Sumerian. Scythian. The Medes. Which are the modern day Kurds. Brought the Assyrian Empire to its knees. Babylon had its role to play as well. The next time around, the Empire of the Khans walked right into the Middle East in the middle of all these conflicts. Brought each and every empire they came up against to their knees. See, there was something peculiar that happened in the midst of all this, too. See, Changus, he was an interesting, very interesting, when you begin to look at who he was as a person. Because when he went in there, anybody that was for him did not decide to rise up against him. He said, man, come on in. You can hang out. They didn't care about riches. None of that mattered to them. Changes as they went back into Mongolia and built a capital city at that point in time so that they could house the people that made alliances and joined up with them so that they could survive. Mongolian people still stayed in their tents and nothing to do with this nice city that was built for them. What else is rather strange is be it through the eastern side, through the Asian countries of China and so forth, that also had become involved in his empire. The Islamic nations, the nations to the west. We had the Romans, for instance. Marco Polo was the most famous example. He was the one that first brought our attention to what we know as the order of the Hashishin, or as we would know them, the assassins. He spent a great deal of time right in the middle of the Mongol Empire. He was Latin. Nations that they consider to be, quote-unquote, the Western nations, people that may have been part of Greece, whomever it may have been. All the ones that joined together with Khan, he brought them into the city. He'd sit them down at the table, make them discuss these important things such as astronomy, philosophy, whatever it may have been. He'd look at me and said, I don't care about your differences. Sit down and work it out and get this stuff done and written. Copernicus, I can't realize how to say his name, sorry. Later on in history, drew from these works that came about because of what he had done. This all begins to get a little bit to the point where you start scratching your head. Now, when we've rolled around to this time in the ride, what's going to happen when finally these kings of the East get ticked off and they say, all right, this is enough? Well, the Bible tells us exactly what's going to happen. 
Your turn, Matthew. My turn indeed. My turn indeed. Well, I, let me read it again. Um, ladies and gentlemen, uh, Isaiah chapter 41. Hold a feast to me, ye islands, for the princes shall renew their strength. Let them draw nigh and speak together. Let them declare judgment. Who raised up righteousness from the east and called it to his feet that it should go, shall appoint it an adversary of Gentiles and shall dismay kings and bury their swords in the earth and cast forth their bows, arrows and sticks. And he shall pursue them. The way of his feet shall proceed in peace. Let's talk about this, ladies and gentlemen. We've often talked about the why. Why is there war in heaven? My children just asked me this tonight in family church. Daddy, why do they go to war? Look, we know this from the biblical timeline. What is the tribulation trigger? What is it? What makes the Lord God of heaven stand up from his throne and kick us off our axis? What makes him snatch those children and take them back up to Mount Zion? Just like Revelation chapter 14 says he's going to do. Well, it's his axe. His axe, Brian just read it to you on the last broadcast. A wicked thought enters his heart and he turns his back and looks at the beautiful land. Ladies and gentlemen, does the Greco Bible source code explain to us why there's war in heaven? Take a deep breath. I'm going to ask you a very stupid question. The Pashtun were from who? Brian just said it not very long ago. Well, ladies and gentlemen. One tribe, let me interject on top of it, though, quickly. Possibly two. tribe of Joseph, correct? Yes, and specifically the one that they have pointed out that translates to the sons of Joseph, they have definitely over and over again stated Ephraim. There's another tribe in this that they think could be Manasseh, but they are not certain at this point in time. Nonetheless, we do know Ephraim is in the middle of that. And when I bring up the fact on top of it too that they on top of it know that Ashkenaz is also in that region. Jeremiah 51, 52, I believe. I don't know. I mean, look, uh, Thanksgiving, 
It hit me like a ton of lead when it, the ramifications hit me. And I was sitting there at the in-laws at the uh, family holiday get-together. And I got a look from her aunt. I felt so bad having to say that. She's like, well, what was that all about? And I'm like, I'm sorry, but I... Right now, I would go so far above your head if I tried to explain this. Just, I'm going to leave it alone for now. <laughs> I'm not going to. I can't. Riddle me this, Bri. Who is the sons of Joseph's prince? Here, man. Let me read it to you one more time. In the Greco Bible source code, Isaiah chapter 41, hold a feast to me, ye islands, for the princes shall renew their strength. Let them draw nigh and speak together. Let them declare judgment who rises up righteousness from Anatolia and called it to his feet so that it should go shall appoint it an adversary to the Gentiles, and shall dismay kings, and bury their swords in the earth, and cast forth their bows and arrows as sticks, and he shall pursue them. The way of his feet shall proceed in peace. Who has wrought and done these things? He is called it who called it from the generations of old. I, God, the first. And to all futility, I am. Okay. Let's, let's do this. Let's just do this real easy and real simply. I want you to think about what was just read. Ladies and gentlemen. Because uh, sometimes you just have to swallow it. Okay. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 7. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels. Okay, stop. Take a deep breath. Michael and his angels waging war. What did you just hear is stated in... Isaiah chapter 41, verse 1. Look, I don't care where Ephraim is. I don't care. I don't care where Manasseh is. I truly don't care. I don't care if they're in Australia or United States or Brazil. I don't care. I know whom their prince is. The word of God was exhaled out of his own mouth and he said, Michael, the prince of your people. Here. Riddle me this. I've talked about this slightly before. You have a prince over a people, and you have a prince over a geographical location. It kind of works like primus numerus and primus resurrectorate. Now, 
in the physical locality of Israel who showed up? Gabriel. When they were outside the borders of Israel because they were in Babylon, who showed up to assist Gabriel? What is referred to here in Revelation chapter 12, verse 7? And there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war. Don't you realize that we just got the why? Take a deep breath. You, God just gave you the why. He's given you so much information that it's hard for the mind to calculate. But now, all of a sudden, it all makes sense. God picks up his axe Puts it to the root. You know what? I spent an awful lot of money in a private institution of higher learning. But they didn't teach me nothing. The Bible didn't already tell me. You know, this is a lot of information to process. It's, it's a lot of information to process when you don't... You have been... You've been programmed just like the Hitler youth. I mean, I, here, tonight my daughter asked me this, okay? Um, and when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman. Now, She's 12 years old, and she had the good sense to ask me, well, why does all the preachers say that we get evacuated? I had to tell her, baby, I don't know. I don't know why they do that. I don't know why. Well, surely they get it. No, baby, they don't. It's nowhere in the Bible. And I ask her point blank, who do you know that knows this, this word of God more intimately, more accurately than your daddy? She just giggled. <laughs> nobody, nobody. So, well, why don't Sunday when you go to church, why don't you ask pastor? You know what she said? She said, daddy, that's not nice. Amen. That's not nice. 
It's not proper for a child to question and display the ignorance of those set over them. I would no more have her do that than I would have any of you pick up the phone and call up the, your, your pastor or your Sunday school teacher and go to World War III with them. Because you didn't know any of this right before you started watching this broadcast right now. You didn't know it. I mean, I'm sorry that my 12-year-old little girl knew it before you did, but well, now that I think about it, ain't that proper? I mean, if any of you, I don't care what your IQ is and what your credentials are, I dare you to come up in my house and try to convince that little girl that the Lord is not God and the Bible is not his word. She'll literally laugh you out of the house. She won't even listen to you. I'm not trying to be condescending. I'm, I'm just... I, look, I'm going to say something quick. I can bear witness to it. I felt like a stooge when I sat and listened to Matthew's children speak. Did it make you mad, Brian? Not even close. It made me happy. And that's the way all of you should be. I can't stress this enough. Don't bark up that tree. Please don't. Don't do it. You've got no right to yell and scream at that pastor that has sacrificed his life to try to minister to you. You know, there's a couple of trees that if you bark up, All that I know and all that I am God did not make me a fireman and I can't get you out of that tree don't get angry about this look I understand that many of you uh, well actually 80% of our viewing and listening audience don't have computers, all you have is uh, smartphones. And I'm sorry that in third world countries they will hand out smartphones and not bread. But those of you who can't, just go to the BibleSourceCode.com, click on the Bible source code and if you have a, a laptop or a computer you can get the exact same thing that you saw Brian and I used tonight don't get mad get hungry Brian had no idea 
what the word used in the Greco Bible source code for East was. Man, I wrote that when I was 12. I knew exactly what was there, and all he had to do was just ask me. And you know what? I'm starved. I'm starved. I cannot get enough of it. Well, maybe relay my response. Brian wasn't surprised. Brian was shocked. And Brian was happy. And Brian knew what that bread was going to taste like. He said, well, I had a gut feeling it was there. I just hadn't taken the time to look. Really? Why do you think Brian looked just then? I'll tell you why. Because everything is beautiful in its time. There's no reason to get mad about it. Don't get mad about it. Get hungry for it. God has not only preserved his word for you, he's did it to you twice. Now, when you think that the Greek is disagreeing with the Hebrew, that's just because one is giving you the technical data and other is speaking to you prophetically. But you have to have eyes that can see and ears that can hear in order to perceive that. Oh, they don't contradict each other at all. Tell me something. Why didn't you know that Muog flail was in the Bible? Because you were supposed to already know it by now. Most of you are adults. And you know, Brian sends me all this information and you can, you know, you can even ask him yourself. He was kind of stumped as to why I picked that out. Well, Matthew, why did you see flail of God? Where's it? And he even had to ask me. And I just chuckled. I said, Brian, you're the one that sent me the link. Let me add in, even without knowing that, I already knew the role of these people. How long ago did I state that we're going to have to do a very intensive discussion about the reality of Gog and Magog, why all these things are described as they are? I may come at things from a different approach. And you can ask Matthew previous to the show. Guess well, why didn't you ask? Uh, I kind of said what it is. I'm stubborn. If I don't see things and find them for myself, what good does it do for me to be able to express these things to everybody else? Amen. Amen. God is good. From the rising of the sun, even into its setting, God is good. I've really enjoyed this broadcast. Bri, are we ready to hang this one up? I really don't know how much more to go with this one. I mean, I hope everybody understands this is the lead-in.
to oh, yeah. that big topic everybody has at the forefront and center of this time of year. Who were those wise men from the East? Now you understand something that's a little bit more, I think, than any of us had ever realized. Because you know what? Everybody coming into this with the discoveries that have been made, I know on my end, I never expected any of what we have found along this path. Not even attempting to trace out the roots of who these people were. And stumbled into all of it. Those wise men from the east, this is a much, much more complex thing than anybody has ever spoken of. And let me uh, flip back over to my cam here just a moment. All considering the ramifications of all of this. A whole lot more going on here. That only came to light since 1978. It's going close to the 40 year mark from now. Not quite 40, but almost. These discoveries have only come to light in that time. A few academic and historians have finally stepped to the plate and said, let's finally talk about a portion of history for some reason nobody has ever talked about. All of this was left veiled into this time. Is it for me to know why? No. It was. The other major portion that locks all into this, this is where all the big discussions are going to start transpiring here. Some of them have probably already started, but over the course of the next seven days here, it's going to be the highlight of many discussions. What was that sign? And there goes my wife, as usual. Always loves to do that. What was that sign? We fall into the same scenario where time has gotten confused. There was a twofold sign, two years apart. First sighting, 12 BC. Second sighting, 10 BC. They referred to one of them as the Ghost Comet. This came from the Chinese astronomers. Well, everybody, two of those empires. And now, on top of it, I already had uh, private discussions with Matthew on this. There were some allegations that another historian was making. I got bothered. I had to track down some documentaries to at least see if I could see the visible proof to confirm this. Now on top of it, this academic, with the book I just picked up last night, again, he's stating that it's rather obvious it was the same group of people that were behind the Zia and the Shang Empire. 
that's altogether odd. Or Matthew, are you still on this broadcast? Oh, yeah, I'm still Okay, that was weird. I don't know what happened. Oh, well, things happened. I'm still on camera. Nobody saw it. It's just my screen had something weird happen. Um, nonetheless, this specific event has always been rejected. They say, yes, this was important. It was so important that in 12 BC, on top of it, they referred to this comet in the exact same way that it was referred to later in history as we approach the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD. In Rome, at the death of one of their major leaders, one of their major emperors, they said that a sword stood over the place. As his leader had passed on, the record of the 12 BC comet can be found all over the place. Yet this is rejected continually because they tell you, well, this isn't the right time. Yet why is it specifically encoded within the proper mathematics of Daniel 9? Right in there. The numbers speak for themselves. You take the additions and the subtractions when you work out what it says in Daniel 9 properly. It says 62 weeks. Not anywhere did it ever say 69 weeks, folks. That one little piece of confusion in there has turned everything upside down. You can read the paper I wrote up on this and look at the mathematics with your own eyes. Embedded in those mathematics is 12 BC. The naturally accepted through a vast amount of the historians, the academics, the biblical scholars and out there and so forth, always lock in on that number of 33 BC. Our 33 years was the duration of Jesus Christ's life upon this earth. We have records that come down later that tell us 21 AD was the year of the crucifixion. We've had people out there that have been confused about the tax records. In the beginning, in the Gospels, yet we have recorded in through the historians of that time, even Josephus, that that only took place during this exact same window that I have emphatically pointed out over and over again with 12 BC. And yet, once again, this is rejected. I'm thankful for the amount of people that have tried to solve what is it that the wise men, what got their attention, why did they go? You know, I applaud them for their attempts. Some good work has been done. Don't get me wrong. Nonetheless, this one has always been rejected. When you begin to understand this, that the timeline has been thrown in so many directions that have completely led to so much confusion, but then on top of it, this time, 
in history on top of it has been obscured. Does it make you angry? I know it did me. We're bringing evidence, folks. We're trying to show you. We're trying to show you emphatically what the Bible is telling us repeatedly. We are showing you the original languages. We are bringing forward the textual, the scientific, the genetic, the archaeological, the anthropological evidence along every stretch of the way. Are we doing this as I've been asked many times by people locally? Well, are you an apologist? I don't even know what that term means 90% of the time. No. I know that the Bible's true. Therefore, when I look at history, when I recognize these important patterns, I know they're there for a purpose. I'm not trying to prove anything. I don't need to prove anything. The Bible's true. Accept that first. Then you're going to see. Matthew brought up something important. I believe it was this weekend. Why is it that we talk about prophecy? Why do we teach prophecy? Prophecy is important when it comes to reaching the lost. I'm hoping that we are equipping people so that they can go out and do that very thing. And I'm hoping that we are getting people to actually open up the Bible and start studying it for themselves and seeing all of this on their own without even our assistance so that they can go further. You know, and, you know, Matthew brought up some important things here over the course here. You know, there's times where I've wanted to have a little chit-chat with some of the uh, shepherds that are around in my neck of the woods. As much as I've ever, in my own prideful arrogance, wanted to do these things, I've always stepped back and restrained myself. There are specific protocols that we are to follow concerning these things. When I was part of a church a few years back, I never brought the leader forward and called him out in front of everybody. Everybody, you got to understand, I was actually good friends with the leader of that church. Me and him would get together and have discussions and chit-chat all the time. When I saw something that was needed a little bit of saying, hey, come here, um... This is kind of not right. I didn't do it in front of anybody. I did it very kindly and we had a discussion about it. But I did not ever walk into any of these places, nor did I ever make accusations against these people for things that they have done just exactly as Matthew stated out of ignorance. I came across some things over the last couple of days 
I'll say they made me mad as fire. But it's not my place. I don't have time. Nor does Matthew. To point out all of these false doctrines that are floating around. And they are getting very, very wild at this point in time. A little bit on the out of control side. The only way to counter these things is not by getting out a baseball bat and bashing these people over the head. Your only counter is by speaking the truth. Do I dislike the things that I am seeing happening? Yes. But as Matthew stated, we're not firemen. The only way that any people that are pulled into some of these things are going to be brought out of it is through speaking truth. If we go in swinging baseball bats and bringing our own axes into the equation and knocking them around, verbally abusing them, you're not going to accomplish anything. You're going to push them away. You're going to make them angry. I don't take part. In discussions that cause division and strife. I've stood against it for a very long time. There's one topic that in this day and age always fires everybody up. And you can ask Matthew this. I get ticked when I catch anybody I know in the middle of those conversations. And I do not take it very lightly. We are not to take part in these things, folks. Start to speak truth. And do that. Hand it back over to Matthew here. I think I unleashed a lot more than I expected, but it had to be said. It had to come out. Nah, man. Good stuff. I could use the black eye every now and again. Still got you, Matthew, or did you take a break? No, I've got my mic on. Okay. Um, yeah, I could use a black eye every now and again, Bri. He was right on time, right on target. Well, ladies and gentlemen, enough said, and everything's beautiful in its time. Until next time, God bless. Godspeed.